0: All right, let's talk about your next patient. Okay. The next patient is a 68-year-old, also past heavy smoker, history of CUPD, heart failure, core pulmonality, and a superficial bladder cancer, also with an interesting history of a remote, what I believe was an indolent lymphoma of the right lung, treated with resection for diagnosis and then radiotherapy alone, who was in the hospital for a... Decompensation in his respiratory status and was noted to have multiple lung nodules and progressive mediastinal adenopathy. As part of that hospitalization, he also had had a question of some melena or heme-positive stool. And as a result of that, he had endoscopic evaluation and ultimately a endoscopic ultrasound, which was performed to evaluate a duodenal abnormality. But the endoscopic ultrasound on the way down, they were able to sample two AP window lymph nodes and also sample a liver hypodensity, which had been underappreciated on the CAT scans. And the histologies were interesting on those. The mediastinal lymph node FNA was positive for carcinoma, which appeared to be adenocarcinoma, whereas the left lobe of the liver lesion appeared to be a neuroendocrine carcinoma that resembled a small cell cancer. And what made that even a little more interesting is, his PET scan was positive in lung nodules, mediastinal lymph nodes, but not in liver, though, again, the liver abnormalities were sub-centimeter. And he subsequently went on to receive carboplatin and taxol. And after two cycles of therapy, bevacizumab was added to his regimen. And we were seeing him at the completion of his carboplatin and taxol and after one dose of maintenance, bevacizumab monotherapy.
1: How's he been doing with the treatment?
0: Terrific. He's another person who I had real significant reservations about their ability to tolerate intensive chemotherapy, but he is someone also who simply got stronger during his treatment rather than weaker.
1: Any hypertension, proteinuria, bevacizumab issues? He has had no problems. Any comments about the case, Tom, and particularly the neuroendocrine thing in the liver? This
2: is one where I threw my hands up and I said, Neil, I'm I'm glad that we're seeing this patient after he's had treatment and done well. This would be a lot harder had <laughs> I mean, we not seen it that way. You did all the hard work here. In looking at it, the things I thought about, A, is this all one cancer or is this two cancers? The pathologist even weighs a question of whether it could be superficial bladder cancer gone badly. I don't think that's what it is. I think this is a gentleman with a heavy smoking history who comes in with a CAT scan process that is... Not classic, but consistent with a non-small cell lung cancer with lots of mediastinal and hilar disease. I think I would have liked to have seen a big prominent lung mass, which we didn't see. The lymph node mediastinal aspiration carcinoma favoring adeno. And the two in the liver favoring your So the question I wondered is, well, could he have a carcinoid in the liver and have a real bad lung cancer? Well, if that's the case, he's got bad lung cancer and treating with carbopaclitaxel makes good sense. You're not going to hurt the carcinoid in that setting and the carcinoid won't determine his lifespan if that's the case. But... In the end of the day, I think it probably is all one cancer that's just being looked at slightly differently by the pathologist in different ways, and depending upon sampling errors, it's probably a non-small cell lung cancer, possibly with neuroendocrine differentiation. I think carbopaclitaxel is an outstanding choice. And the one thing I said is that what I would do is, upon relapse, probably biopsy him again to get a sense of maybe what you're dealing with, get a little more refinement of the histology and. You know, if there are newer endocrine features for your second or third line, you've got a reno and you've got a toposide and you've got drugs that may have better activity in that setting. But the good news is he really has done very well. And his biggest issue was he was trying to get to Foxwoods, which is the casino here in Connecticut. And he wasn't really able to spend enough time at Foxwoods. So
1: that to me was a good sign that he was tolerating therapy quite well. And you mentioned, Neil, that you held off on the bevacizumab until after two cycles. What was your thinking there?
0: Well, in part, it was just pending more review of his histology, but I mean, ultimately, the pathologist was able to go back and look at his bladder cancer was restained and was CK20 positive. So I think it was a little more comfortable that it wasn't a metastatic bladder. Part, I was a little concerned about this questionable history of blood in the stool, and that's something that I had asked Dr. Lynch about. What bleeding constitutes unacceptable risk with bevacizumab? And it was really for those two concerns. And also, in part, just to make sure he did okay with chemotherapy in general and starting slower instead of all at once.
1: Any other comments about this case?
0: I think the other thing, he's another example of a patient who's on maintenance
2: bevacizumab, tolerating maintenance well. And I think your plan, Neil, to scan him every three months and get a sense of what's going on makes excellent sense. What would you be thinking, Tom, about a future therapy or next therapy in him? I think with him, I'd biopsy him upon progression again, and I would use that to guide therapy. And I think if you get something that's more consistent with this being a garden variety adeno, I probably would use Pemetrexid as my next step. If you got a neuroendocrine phenotype, I probably would use a Renotecan or VP16 as my next step, probably with a platinum depending upon when it is, meaning this gets again to the question of would you use a platinating agent. Well, if he goes 14, 15 months, I definitely would give a platinum with that drug. If he goes six or seven months, I probably would use single agent.
0: I guess one other question I, I would ask sort of a state-of-the-art question, which I suspect I know the answer to, is we talked about no hypertension as maybe a good thing, but is really a good thing. And someone who's had no hypertension, is that, has that entered the realm of a significant biomarker? And should we be spending hundreds of thousands of dollars on maintenance bevacizumab in someone who may not have a biologic phenotype of responding to the disease?
2: Or should we push the dose to hypertension? I think those are all very good points. And I think that those are things we just don't know
1: yet. If he does go 15 or 16 months, Tom, would there be any consideration to adding Erlotinib to the Bevacizumab?
2: One could make that call with the argument that you're adding some switch maintenance at that point, but I probably wouldn't. I think if Neil decided to do that now, I don't think that's the end of the world decision. I think Erlotinib has been shown to benefit patients in the maintenance standpoint, although Erlotinib and Avacin, and actually Erlotinib and Avacin, look like they have a trend in that direction. I probably wouldn't do it now, but I don't think it's crazy.
1: Are there any situations where you use that combination, Tom?
2: I'm not a huge fan of erlotinib and Avastin. I've treated a few EGFR mutants where I've added in Avastin at times of progression when I didn't have a lot of other options and I was sort of searching for something. But I wouldn't say in a normal routine of treating patients that I've been using that combination a lot. I did before beta came out, before the randomized trial that argued against a benefit in that setting.